been at St. James for a little over, um, over a year now, and this was never something that was ever on our agenda. We just wanted to find a church home. And many of you know I'm in, uh, I'm in seminary, and, and it, you know, it's just it's an amazing time. But the way this all worked out, um, there's a term called uh, turning water into wine, and that's what I really feel like has happened. We've had some really tough years in the past, and so things have just... I continue to sit back and look and say, how did we get here? How, how? this is so amazing, and yet here we are. Um, I, I am super excited today to talk about something that I think the Lord's been speaking into my heart for a little while now. You know, when we, as I said, we've been here a little over a year, and one of the really cool things is that as I got to know James, I found out he and I shared something in common. And that was a love for the mystics, for the, the church mothers and fathers. The first real conversation I had with James was when I worked at LCAC. Um, and I was telling him about some of the thoughts. I said, hey, have you ever read Catherine of Siena? He goes, oh, I love Catherine of Siena. <laughs> and we just kind of go back and forth. And it's like, wow, we have all this in common. Because there's such value and such worth in what the church mothers and church fathers had to say about things. And I think sometimes when we hear a lot of what Christianity is today, it's this really consumeristic kind of feel about it's all hectic and exciting and it's, it's this, dart here, dart there, go to this guy, go to that girl, listen to this message, do that series. And yet the mystics have to tell us to stop, stop. Um, so today we're going to be talking, I have a, a message entitled, Come Forward. And the really cool thing is, it's got the background here of what looks to be a monastery. And um, today is, is kind of what we would call a prequel message, right? I am super excited about January, because we are doing a, starting a series on a book by a, an author called, his name is Greg Peters. And the book is called The Monkhood of All Believers, The Monastic Foundation of Christian Spirituality. And it has been life-changing for me. And it's full of practices, but it's also about how to adapt the monastic vows to our everyday lives and how that can really work with us. So today's kind of a prequel of that, so you're going to hear a lot more of this in January. But this book is just, I am so super excited about this because it's amazing, um, and, and I can't wait to get into it. Uh, but we're not going to really get into it today, but this is just kind of a, you know, it's like the Star Wars trailer. It's like, <gasps> it's almost here, it's almost here, tell me more. I'll tell you a little bit, and you can get the rest in January. Um, so let's start today uh, with the book of Mark. Book of Mark, chapter 3. I'm going to be reading um, a little bit in chapter 3. We're going to read some in chapter 5 today. Uh, and this is, this is a really cool passage. Mark, chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. So you get this message, this, this, this um, mention of this guy. Okay, We don't have a name. We don't know anything about him other than he had a withered hand. So let's, let's use our imaginations a little bit, okay? And let's see if we can fill in the blanks. So let's call him, his name is, his, his given name is Elias. Okay. But for, for short, his community, they just call him Eli, because everybody knows Eli. And Eli has been a part of this community for years and years, his whole life. Okay. 
So Eli has been coming to, ch to the synagogue. He's been a faithful member. And then, I mean, Eli's probably somewhere in his mid-30s, but as a, as, a, as a late teenager, he's working in the fields with his father, and there's a farming accident. And he breaks his arm. Well, we're talking about the first century, so it's not as though he can go and have it x-rayed, and then they'll open him up and put some plates in there and get it nice and straightened out, and then he'll go through some physical therapy and get it all worked out. Nope, that arm's broke, and it never heals. And so because it never really heals straight, he never really uses the arm anymore. And so now instead of a nice, full, straight arm, it is curled up, and he just keeps it right there. But of course, you know what happens to muscles if you don't use them. They shrink, right? And so as the muscles and tendons have begun to shrink, the arm gets smaller. He's got a good other hand, but this one is nice and is now curled up. And so, week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, Eli comes to synagogue. And he's there. And he even goes up um, on, on some occasions and he, and he goes to the table and he reads the Torah. You know, you're not supposed to touch the Torah, so he's got his little thing here and he reads it. He keeps the arm here because it's right there. But he's faithful to the community. The point I want to make to you by telling you that backstory is that the people in that synagogue knew him. He wasn't some stranger that nobody knew. He's well known. It's the guy with the withered hand. Oh, who's the guy with the withered hand? Oh, that's Eli. We know Eli. It's a terrible accident you know, 10 years ago. Now, why does I say that's important? Because Jesus comes in here, and it says here in verse 2, they watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath. So what, what, is, what is the point that I'm trying to make here? He's well known, and they know who he is, and they're watching. Oh, Jesus is here. Jesus has come into the synagogue today. I wonder if he's going to touch Eli. I wonder. Hey, what do you think? You think he's going to notice Eli today? So let's see what Jesus is going to do. Eli's been coming faithfully for these years and years and years. But through all his service to the synagogue, through all of his time, reading the Torah, doing everything, that hand has remained withered. All those Sabbath services, faithful attendance. And here's the interesting thing. The withered hand never stops him from coming. He keeps coming. Then one faithful Sabbath, Eli comes to the synagogue, and lo and behold, Jesus is there, and he's not just present, but he focuses attention right on Eli. And he points him out. And he says, come forward. Come forward. I'm sure Eli's like, okay. Steps forward. Uh, everybody knows that Jesus has got healing power, right? Every, this is the story. People flock around Jesus to see what he's going to do. It's all excitement. He says, come forward. Then he gives his speech about, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not to be driven? They're just listening. And he says, stretch out your hand. And Eli stretches it out, and the muscles come back, and the hand goes forward. The bones snap into place, and it's good as new. But it, it brings to the question, doesn't it? I mean, there's some questions that go with this. All those years of faithful presence, all those years of faithful obedience to the Torah, 
Why did it take so long for Jesus to show up and heal that hand? I mean, come on, don't you understand? How do you support a family with one hand in an agricultural society? Or in a fishing society? I mean, fish with one hand? Well, it's, I mean, you got a, you got a bite there, but, I can't, you know, what are you going to take your withered hand and do this? You, you can't. It's just not going to happen. And then Jesus heals him and then departs from the synagogue and goes about his way, and Mark kind of details what happens next. The following Sabbath, though, we don't have a mention of this, but I would bet good money who's in the synagogue on that following Sunday. Eli, he continues to come. It's an interesting story. It kind of gives you an idea about some things that are going on here. And now you're like, Tim, where am I going with this? Because I know what my wife is thinking. She's like, this doesn't make any sense. Because I usually get this feedback when I get home. Like, that didn't make any sense. Stay with me, okay? (laughs) Stay with me. Stay with me. This is going to make sense at some point. But that's okay. You know, a prophet's not without honor in his own home. And it's, it's fine. It's fine. I'll hear about that one, too. <laughs> it's okay. I have the microphone. Um, Mark chapter 5. This is an even more perplexing um, passages of Scripture. Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea in the country of the, the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore. Even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and the chains. But the chains were wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. And then I want to jump down to verse 14. Listen to this. The swineherds ran off. Now, you know the story, right? He's got legion in him, and he casts them out, and they go into the pigs, and the pigs run off the edge, okay? So the swine herds run off and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people came to see what it was that happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. And now I want to go to verse 18, verses 18 and 19. Listen to this. And as he was getting, this is Jesus, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. How often do you find somebody in the scriptures who says, Jesus, let me follow you. I want to stop everything and follow you. Let me answer that. It's like, it doesn't happen. There's several times in the Bible where you see people, Jesus points to people and says, come follow me. Well, first let me. Or I need to do this. Or I'll follow you, but. But you have this one person here who is saying, I will leave everything behind and come follow you. And verse 19 says this. This is is incredible. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. This man has experienced the fullness of Christ He's been delivered, and all he wants to do is stay with Jesus, to become a disciple. And Jesus says, no. Can you imagine that? Jesus refuses this man. 
Go home to your friends and family. It's fascinating. Um, one of the things I learned back in the summer when I took my course in Greek is how the different translations of the Bible write. So I'm reading to you today out of the NRSV, and then you, some of you will use the NIV, some use the American Standard Version. I mean, it's just, there's so many different ones. It all comes from the same root Greek text, but it's all done based on, well, we think the word means this, we think the word means that. And the word here for family, go home to your family, or go home to your friends. Actually, the word in Greek, and I'm going to use some Greek here, one word of Greek. The Greek word is sous, and it essentially is translated by one word. It says, yours. Go home to yours. The NIV says, family. The NRSV says, friends. The idea here is, go home to your community, to your people. So now we've got Eli, who's had his hand stretched out, but Jesus has left him there. And now we've got the demoniac who's begging Jesus, let me come with you. And Jesus says, no, go home to your community. So let me bring this all back to what we're, what we're kind of looking at here, okay? Eli, everything around about Eli has been based around the synagogue, of where this occurs. And so each of us today, what I want you to kind of make the comparison here is this, this synagogue idea. It represents prayer. Each of us, when we pray, we retreat into our own inner synagogue, or for our purposes, let's call it our own inner monastery, okay? We retreat into this little place that's just us and just God. We go through, we, we, we come here, we, we pray, we seek God. But let's be honest with one another, okay? We're not quite like Eli. We go through seasons where we faithfully enter our inner monastery and we pray, day after day. Ah, oh, I did really well. That's the... Four days in a row I've prayed. You ever thought that before? Yeah, no, I do. I'm doing really good. Check that box. Man, I'm awesome. And then we go through seasons where we seldom enter this place. How often do we enter our inner monastery and wonder if Jesus is even going to show up? Uh, when I was talking to James about this um, message, I guess it's what, three weeks ago now? I said, you know, there's times when you get into your prayer time and it's just, oh, this is amazing. Wow, this is great. And then there are times when you enter your time of prayer, your little inner monastery, and then you're just staring at a wall. And I was telling James that. He said, well, this morning when I was having my quiet centering time, it was just me and my desk. And so sometimes that really discourages us. Will Jesus come today? Will he finally, here's one for you. Will he finally answer my prayers? At some point, you've been hearing me talk about this, and you're not doing anything. Because I think we've got this really weird kind of concept about prayer. The mystics of old had a much different idea about prayer. They weren't seeking the answering of prayers. Rather, they were seeking union with God. So prayer for them was complete, had a completely different idea behind it. Union with God only comes by emptying ourselves of all the things that are contrary to God's will and allowing God to replace it only with God's self. All right, so that's a great little terminology right there that's really difficult for almost all of us. How is it that the mystics could do this? James, where was Julian of Norwich? 
an anchorage in the side of a church, and she never left the room. Catherine of Siena, one of my favorites, stayed in a room in her bedroom, in her house, in her own bedroom, and didn't leave. The monks and nuns who enter monasteries, they never leave. They stay in their room all day except to go to the services in the chapel. Then they go back. And so you see that this, this kind of idea of these mystics is, is like, well, here's the process. St. John of the Ladder, the, the 30 steps of divine ascent. It's this long process of clearing yourself and then getting rid of all this stuff and then finally achieving union. This is what they do in monasteries. And it's what you heard of Julian say this morning. Union leads us to loving others. It's about that union with God, and then it focuses out. But what about us? You and I, we cannot, and we're not going to go live in a monastery. Or maybe you will. I don't know. I'm not going to live in a monastery. Let me, let me clarify that with you. I, it's just never going to happen. I'm not going to do it. So... How do we do this? If we can't go live in a monastery, then how can we kind of understand what this inner monastery is like, what this inner presence is like? I think, number one, we need to understand what prayer really is all about. Understand what the purpose of prayer actually is. So I love Brian Zahn. Brian Zahn is one of my favorite preachers. Uh, I've, I've never actually met Brian Zahn. I would love to, and I may actually meet him next June. Um, but he's a pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And he's got a quote in his book called Water to Wine. And you want, oh, there it is. Here it is. It says this. The purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. And so a lot of times when we approach prayer and these seasons of prayer when things are hard and they're not getting answered, we're kind of like our frustrations with prayer. I mean, they don't seem to be getting anywhere. But our frustrations repair often come because they're rooted in a not understanding why we should pray. Certainly there are times in our prayers, and even, even Paul says, hey, let your requests be made known to God. But I think so often we stop there. Prayer is about making requests. But that's not all it's about. We pray not to get God to do things for us, but to be transformed in who, into who God wants us to be. So when you begin to understand the mystic's view of what prayer is about, it's the, the, the requests part, it's so small. And so now, understand Eli, he's been coming, he's been faithful in this. Every time, a miracle occurs. He's had this great time, but he's still coming. This is why spiritual practices are so important. They serve to refocus us not on ourselves, but on the transformation that we need if we are to be light to our community. Now, go back to the demoniac. He has had something tremendous, transformational happen to him. And what does Jesus tell him? Go home to your community. Transformation within prayer, which takes place within our own selves, within this little inner monastery that we go, it's just us and God. It's not just about us. It's not just about us getting what we need, although that's part of it. It's also about going back to your community. Transformation should always embody our community as well. 
when we're asking God, change me, God, it doesn't just start with me being changed. It means change me so that I can extend that change to others. There's a prayer that Brian Zahn's got in his prayer liturgy. It says, may we embody the reign of Christ here and now. May we be in anticipation of the age to come. May we embody the reign of Christ here and now. And what is the reign of Christ? It's freedom and liberty and the love of God for everyone. So what does this look like? How do we reframe kind of our, our concepts of prayer? Do you want to know what God wants to teach you? Have you ever tried Lectio Divina? We talked about this last year. It's a great spiritual practice. What's in your life that may need to change that you're not necessarily aware of? Well, the mystics would call that the prayer of examine. Are you, is there noisy? Is your life, is it complicated? Is everything going on? Are you, are you just overwhelmed by everything that's coming in? Why well, we have centering prayer? What about the dualistic nature of our society today? They're wrong. No, they're wrong. I'm right. No, 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 I'm right. How do we ever get through one side or the other? This is where a contemplative prayer lifestyle comes in. What about the times when I don't even know what to pray or how to pray? Many people have used the prayer liturgy. The prayers of the saints. All of these practices serve to transform us, to make us into what God wants us to be so that we can then be what God needs us to be to, to others. What are the two great commandments? Number one is love God. What is number two? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. It's not just about us. And prayer can never be just about us because God said it's not just about you. Go home to your family. As you begin to change how you use prayer, why you pray, here's the most interesting thing. You yourself will begin to change. It's subtle at first, but it takes place. Sometimes you don't even notice it's happening until finally you look at someone and you're like, see them differently now. How is it that we're going to ever view people as the image of God, the image bearer of God? How often do we talk about this? You are the direct reflection of God's goodness. How can you even see that in someone? Well, you need God to transform you. And there are going to be times, I mean, you, these, sometimes these are not exciting practices. Let me tell you, they're, they're not. Do you think Julian of Norwich was excited every day. I don't think so. I think there were days where she was like, oh, read the daily office today and do my prayers. And there are times when you're going to enter your little inner monasteries to spend that alone time with God, and you're going to be a bit withered. You ever felt withered? Oh, man, my soul is withered today. It's been a bad week at work. It's been a bad week at home. And I'm, I'm tired. And then you'll enter that inner monastery to pray, and Jesus will be there. Not in the sense that well, we always know God's listening to us, right? And if anyone believes, it, he, God hears your prayers, right? Fine. But then there's those times 
when you're in that time of prayer, and oh man, the fullness and presence of God is right in that room with you, and, and you're just, it's breathtaking. You're, you know what I'm talking about? When you've had that time of prayer, that you've touched God's presence. And we begin to kind of touch on that union with God. And this is when God says, and he comes, and Jesus stands, and he comes into the room, and he says, come forward. He says, come forward. And he looks around, and well, there's nobody else in the room, so it has to be you. <laughs> you know, so it has to be. So you come forward. And he says, stretch out your hand. Or he looks at you, and he says, stretch out your soul to me. It's one of the reasons I pray in my prayer liturgy I use. I pray the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Oh, he drinks that deep, that new wine. He just comes in and you breathe in that freshness of God. And all you can think about is, I don't want to leave this moment. I don't want to leave. I don't want this to end. Please, stay here. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. But what happens? He goes. Jesus goes. And he tells you, I know you really want this. I know this is kind of really what you're interested in. Go home to your family. Go home to your community. Be transformed so that you can be transformative. And so there's this kind of feeling of loss. But this is why I read this story and Mark 3, listen to what it says at the beginning of the story with, the, with Eli. First word, again. Again, he entered the synagogue. What does that tell you? He comes back. He comes back. We don't have to have this one-time experience in prayer where we've touched on this, and then it's never to happen again. We go with the assurance that when we enter prayer, when we enter this time of these practices, that there is a promise that he's going to come back. Sometimes it's going to be like we're sitting in that chair and we're just staring at the desk. But we're like Eli, we faithfully come and we're present. And we go back to our community and we go back to our family. And then we come another time and, and he looks at you and he says, Come forward. And then you begin to understand. I don't have to be frightened about whether or not he's going to be here or not. He's always here with me. Sometimes I notice him. Sometimes I don't notice him. But that's okay. Because he's here and he's transforming me. And he's making me into what God wants me to be. So what is the point of today that I want to say? I want you to understand that God wants to transform us. He wants to take us and make us into vessels of light and love for our community, for the people around us, the people that surround us. He wants to pour that into you, not just for us to say, ooh, it's good, it's mine, but for us to take that and say, you are loved. You are accepted as you are. And God loves you. And he 
wants to love you. And let me love you and accept you. That's the message. When he says, come forward and restores your soul, go into your places and restore other people too. Love your neighbor. It's the second great commandment.